Hi, this is Mark Jones, and I'm on the NeuroNoodle Network podcast. Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen's tech whiz, neurofeedback legend, Jake Uncleman, and author of Neurofeedback and the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, Seaburn Fisher. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete, and today we have special guest Mark Jones and company. He's the incoming president of ISNR and adjunct professor, director of neurofeedback program at the University of Texas at San Antonio. But before we get to Mark, we've got to pay the bills. We've got some Patreon love to dish out. We'd like to thank our Patreon business sponsors as well as our show sponsor, Mary Tracy's Neuro Training Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG, education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That little like and click to subscribe is the difference between three people or 3,000 people learning about neurofeedback. That little click. The algorithms go crazy. Don't know why. I'm not a computer programmer. I'm just telling you. You want people to learn about neurofeedback? Subscribe. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Seaburn Fisher, welcome to the show again. Thank you. Happy to be here. Oh, Jake Uncleman, welcome, Dr. Laura. I got this email from this guy, Mark Jones. He says, I love the podcast. So do my students. Like the opportunity to come on the program, discuss the neurofeedback program we have at UTSA. You can read about it on the university website at Neurofeedback Training, UTSA, C-O-E-H-D. Did I mention my students? They have formed a student activities organization the Neurofeedback Society of UTSA, nfbutsa.com slash main. We'll have all all the links in the podcast notes. So I'm like, uh, hey, Jay uh, Seaburn, Dr. Laura, this Mark Jones guy, anybody know him? You you want him on the show? (laughs) And like in a matter of 30 seconds, yes, yes, yes. The the, The incoming president of ISNR. Well, of course. So I'm like, Okay, uh, Mark, could you please come on the show with us? And here we are. Mark Jones, thanks for coming on the show. You're welcome. Wonderful. Hey, hey, who who are these people you brought with you now? Oh, these are some of my students. Uh, This, this, uh, it's it's folks like Whitney and uh, Emily that keep me teaching. I would have retired by now. (laughs) Uh, The money is not worth it, I can guarantee you, but... uh, uh, the students uh, keep me going. Whitney is uh, uh, just finishing up her master's in uh, counseling. I'll let her tell you a little bit about herself. And is, has been accepted into the Ph.D. program at TSA, where she has some really cool designs on some research projects involving neurofeedback. Welcome, Emily. All right. Both Emily and uh, Whitney have been uh, graduate assistants, and uh, uh, it, it's, it's like uh, your right and left arm and one of your legs uh, when when you have graduate assistants like these these two. Emily has uh, well, you're you're the current president of the uh, Neurofeedback Society of UTSA, 
I believe you were involved in the conference when we had Seaburn uh, as our uh, keynote speaker. Yeah, yeah, beloved. And uh, <clears throat> Emily's a delight. She's just now finishing up her master's as well. And uh, both have uh, completed the, uh, the neurofeedback program and uh, are, are seeing clients through the university clinic. So I've, I've been uh, directing this program for 12 years now. And um, I believe the connection came through the department chair, knowing Randy Lyle, knowing me, we used to work together. And uh, uh, somehow or another, I got invited to start this program uh, at the university here in San Antonio and uh, in the counseling department, which is in my humble opinion, exactly where neurofeedback belongs. And uh, having uh, in the psychology and the department and whatnot, people who are in mental health uh, using neurofeedback to uh, help people with mental health issues and, and also, you know, some performance uh, enhancement issues. But I've been blessed. I, I just get these invitations to do things like this. And as long as it's fun, I'm in for it. And uh, so my design from the beginning was a three-year, a three-tier program where we have the intro course that meets the BCIA blueprint. Uh, and uh, one of the questions on the exam is the intro course does not in itself uh, qualify you to hang your shingle out and do neurofeedback. We have advanced sections, two of them, uh, which also integrate with counseling internships and practicums, uh, students can count hours toward those required uh, courses. But they're seeing the clients in the uh, on-campus uh, clinic, the Sarabia Family Counseling Center. And uh, we have a EEG lab. We can see uh, four to five sessions concurrently. And uh, so the enrollment kind of goes up and down, but it's year round. We have. Uh, we're seeing clients uh, and subjects uh, year round and we're just, we're getting back to in person. We're seeing people in person now still doing some remote training. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, later. Uh, I call it the dark night of the soul when the pandemic hit. <laughs> and, uh, uh, we survived with uh, a lot of help from our friends and uh, managed to keep the program uh, going uh, quite well. So anyway, that, that that's how I got into the program. I, I have a private practice, the Well Mind Center uh, in San Antonio. We do neurofeedback counseling, all kinds of stuff. And, uh, now, uh, so now, I, now for, for, for the new listeners, Mark, what, what is the ISNR? International Society for Neuroregulation and Research. Now, who jo who joins that? Like, because we have moms and dads, clinicians, you know, tax listening. Like, who would you want to join? How, you know, everybody. We want everybody. <laughs> we want everybody to join. Uh, we do have uh, memberships more designed for clinicians, but it's it's a wide open uh, kind of thing. It is a society uh, that really promotes uh, the field of neurofeedback and advocates for uh, neurofeedback. And, um, and as the R stands for research, that's going to be my emphasis when I become prez. <laughs> uh, the R and ISNR research, that's, that's our lifeblood. Hey, hey, Jay, you know anything about being president of that? 
<laughs> you know, I have vague recollections of uh, all sorts of bias in our time, you know, um, and the, the presidency was always fun as well. So can you offer uh, Mark some advice? Just a quick, you know, well, uh, uh, Mark already has great instincts. Uh, as you can see, look at his students and his program. Uh, I, I think ISNR is in extremely good hands at this point. Um, and like any society, you know, uh, the, the impetus kind of comes and goes as to what's going on with it. But Mark's, as I say, got great instincts. I, I, I trust that he's got a hand on the tiller that's going to point everything in the right direction. God, everybody's so nice. This is this is awesome. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, okay. So, uh, mental health awareness month. Okay, there's only one month where we're aware of it. Um, what? what <laughs> why aren't more schools like yours, Mark, offering neurofeedback? I mean, is yours the only school that offers it? Like, I because we're talking about adoption. You can't have adoption unless schools teach it. Why aren't more schools doing it? That, that's a good question. I would like to know the answer. There are there are some uh, schools that, that have it, but not necessarily the state universities. And uh, I'm hoping, you know, as uh, one of my bosses said years ago, you know, you're you're uh, training your competition, <laughs> and I, I hope so. I've been training my competition for decades, and uh, I hope I can uh, broadcast. Uh, uh, students who graduate and uh, go to other universities and teach and uh, our, our PhD is for those who are planning to teach and uh, um, so I think we've got some seeds planted out there and I, I know some folks that are doing neurofeedback but not necessarily a dedicated program. Ours is really structured around meeting the certification requirements through BCIA and uh, uh, we, we offer everything but the uh, neuroanatomy course and the exam. So uh, 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 so that's that's the way to do it. And I tell you, it enhances the, the counseling program because we're teaching, um, we're teaching neuroscience, we're teaching neuroanatomy, um, neuropharmacology. Students learn what's going on in the brain uh, related to mental illness, uh, how medications are affecting them. So whether they ever put a wire on anybody's head, uh, they're going to be better counselors uh, for having gone through the program because they're going to understand the organ that we're treating <laughs> with counseling uh, techniques. And there's a ton of science around about that. My, my limited experience, I mean, it's three, four years, okay? I'm, you know, I, I'm trying to learn and whatever I learn, I try to share with everybody else that are afraid to look stupid. I have no problems looking stupid whatsoever. But it seems to me like everybody's operating in their silo and it's competitive and everybody's uh, bringing up FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt on this program or that program. Then throwing the drug companies, then the DSM, right? And then you got the poor moms and dads, you know, like me out there, like... I, I don't know. I just want it fixed. Okay, give me a pill. What? How, how can we? F <laughs> do, do we need it to be more regulated, or how? Again, we're getting back to the adoption. Well, let, let me quickly say I think the mom and pops are going to drive the field as far as the demand. At least that's what I experience in my practice. And um, 
uh, people that are going into mental health treatment are going to be asked about, do you offer this? And uh, so hopefully be, that'll be a market driver uh, for it. And uh, so academically, I think it makes sense if anybody is listening to me uh, who's involved in a university curriculum, this can so enhance uh, the program. Speak to so that. Mark, you're, you said that you're training your competition, but actually what you're doing is creating the fields level rising. And it's not really competition. Our clients don't know who we are. They don't know what we do. They don't know how to get a hold of us. So if you make more people that are doing this, you're raising the profile of the field. It's coopetition, not competition. Co-opetition. And you, you basically end up, um, you know, uh, uh, I, I sometimes make the analogy of if you own an antique store, you don't mind if another antique store moves into the area because now you're the antique district and people <laughs> know what to get and where to go and what you do. And so uh, what we need to do is enhance the level of the field and not worry about our slice of the pie radius, but how big the pie is. And uh, we've got more than enough market out there. You could have 10 more people in your local area and you still couldn't really serve the market if they knew what we were and what we did. So I'm, I'm happy that you're seeding uh, uh, professionals into the field. Yeah. And I think they're all with a collaborative mindset when they come out of your laboratory. I don't see you training people that are, you know, up in arms against each other. They come out of your lab cooperating. And I think that's, you know, I see your students having fun and I see them being more educated. Those two things together are what's going to foster the field. We, we need to enjoy each other. We need to ratchet up the level of our science. And I see you doing that. So uh, congratulations on 12 years of excellent work. And being the president of the society, uh, again, you've got your hand on the tiller. Keep them pointing towards the good times and the cooperation. I think we're in good hands. I just wanted to second it before you had a chance to uh, to say anything, Mark, because it's really true. And it's uh, I, everything that Jay said, I, I agree with. And it's always, it seems to be always your students that shine in these, um, you know, in posters and in awards and in, you know, and, and uh, so I think that it is, um, you know, your work has been vital. And we're all making our contribution where we can and on the very lines that Jay was saying. So I applaud you as well and your students. Thank you. And I can guarantee you, Seaburn, your book is uh, quite popular in in the program. Hey, it's right there on the shelf. (laughs) I I tell you, I, I, you know, I did a review and I, I, I say it, I said it then, I'll say it now. It's beautifully written. And uh, from a seasoned clinician. And um, again, uh, like I tell students, if you never do neurofeedback in your practice, you'll learn so much uh, about counseling and uh, mental health through the book. And and that's been proven to be true. Well, if I can say something, I 
I can't like quite get that amalgamation of your word, Jay, but this idea of, um, of collaboration between clinicians and promotion of the field. Ultimately, it comes to this idea of uh, what, what you see, like we're a helping profession and we're like, we see individuals who are a lot of times, especially when they're coming to neurofeedback, like their, their parents or they're someone who has used every method, like they've used everything else. They're like one of my interests is trauma, and it's someone who has experienced a lot. And like when you're like the idea of competition almost seems harsh to me because you're a helping profession and you're working with someone. And this is this is what it is. It's between you and someone who is desperate for help. And so really like, hey, has does anyone have something that would help? And, oh, you're helping over here? Good, because I'm helping over here. Um, and, and it's this idea of collaboration and, and synergy, synergistic yeah. help. And, and everyone can work together. And so I think it's really lovely. Part of the Every word was. <laughs> right, really part of the problem is that, that the, we get back to the other obstacles that Pete was talking about and the, the fact that neurofeedback is yet to have insurance reimbursement puts people into a competitive environment, which is needless. You don't feel like if you're a psychologist in town, you're in a competitive environment. You know that you're, you know, but, but, but people who even have that worry that they won't uh, get uh, reimbursed or they won't get the call for their services if, they, if somebody else comes into town have to think of what Jay just said, is that, you know, uh, the, the analogy that I've used is you have one good restaurant, nobody comes. But if you have three good restaurants, they all come. It's the same, very same analogy, really. And so uh, um, it's, this, it's a systemic problem that keeps people away from this. And it has everything to do with the DSM and with the uh, pharmacological model and a misunderstanding fundamentally of how the brain works and you know just a few big systemic issues that we have to come up against um it's not uh, an inherent badness in it's just it's it it, it isn't it isn't a problem uh, inherent to neurofeedback i once called this the salmon problem right I, the the uh the the competitive that issue in neurofeedback and and what I meant by it was that there are there are tours that you can take in Alaska to see grizzly bears and they take the you go on these tours and you go to a river and there are so many salmon running that the grizzly bears don't turn on each other or on you right because there's plenty of salmon well there's not plenty of salmon yet and so that can set up a, a false idea of competition um, and, but the reality is, is that there are plenty of salmon. There's the, the need for this, but if you can't get the paradigm shift and somewhere we just keep nudging against the paradigm, right? The dominant paradigm of the, although even now, you know, I'll talk about the neurochemical circuitry. It's like, what are you saying, right? <laughs> it's popular. Press. What is a neurochemical circuit? I don't know what that is, Right. 
but, but it's, it's shifting. And at some point it will flip. And at some point it will be, we always knew the brain worked this way as though we haven't been for 30 years trying to get people to understand that the brain works this way and that the brain gives rise to, them, to, to a particular mind. And that we, you know, I, I've, you know, people are talk, talk a lot about theories of consciousness and I have come to the position so that I can winnow down what I feel I should read is that if people don't understand that you can change the nature of consciousness, right, then I, then their theory isn't worth spending time with and that you can change it most profoundly in the frequency domain of the brain. You can pluck those strings. And the only place that we have access to frequencies, which are a, stand, a property of the universe, energy is a property, frequency is a property. I mean, it's the property. If Einstein is right, everything is energy. So then we have the frequency domain. The only place we have access to that, direct access to that is through the brain. That's a profound thing. That just that one message, if people could understand that, and then we can change the way we function. We, I had a patient who, who um, was very, uh, when he started training, he, was, he, was, he came from Miami. He was very racist about Hispanic people. By the time he was halfway through his training, he was learning Spanish. Right. So that, and, and so and I present that in a casual conversation, even at a, even an ISNR meeting or a future health meeting. And people say, you mean you can affect racism? Of course, of course, you can affect the fundamental way the mind works by changing, by appealing to the frequencies that give rise to the mind. And those are in the brain. That's what we do. This is profound. So uh, anyway, these are the pep talks that you know I'm, I'm likely to give, particularly when there are students in the room, because I want you to know how profound it is what you're doing and to stay with it. I was just going to say kind of in that vein, I think that the idea of advocacy is a word that we toss around a lot. Um, but we don't always acknowledge that advocacy is really hard. It's something that you don't get paid for, really. It's not something that um, you've already had an eight hour, 10 hour, 11 hour day, whatever it is. But then you have to go and you have to fight the good fight, right? But if it's not us, then who is it going to be is a question that we really need to ask ourselves. And something that I think Dr. Jones brings very beautifully to our program um, is the idea that he wants us to question everything. He encourages us, us to not just accept the status quo, that it's okay to look at something and say, why does this work? How does it work? What can I do better? Because there's always improvements and growth to be made as counselors, as uh, any mental health professional, but also as neurofeedback clinicians. Um, so that idea with research and things like that, research is everything that we do as mental health professionals. Everything that we do has been researched and studied and sussed out by people, but that's what we're doing here in neurofeedback now. Yes, we know that it works and things, but the way that we're going to get our voices out there is that advocacy and that research piece. And so I think that for me, um, as somebody who came from a Bachelor of Psychology background into a counseling program, I was worried, where's the research going to be for me? But Dr. Jones has never said no to an idea I've come up to him with. And sometimes I'll say, well, when I start applying for doc programs, I want to work on resiliency and survivors um, with neurofeedback. That's something I really want to do. And then he'll just kind of 
just go with it right in that moment. He'll drop three sentences on you. That'll change your life in that moment. And then walk away, <laughs> go get his coffee. Like it didn't happen. Um, and you're still like, your whole mind is blown. Um, but he's always done that. He's not afraid to help you with your research, even if it means that it might not give him the credit for that, you know, that help that he gave. Um, and he doesn't want us to accept everything as just, that's the way it is. So let's just do it that way. Right. That, I think that's a harmful mentality that can come sometimes, um, in the mental health field, in neurofeedback, anything, any field really is the idea. Well, it just is that way. So let's accept it. Dr. Jones doesn't want us to just accept that. He wants us to change the field. He wants us to advocate and he wants to help us grow as clinicians as well. So, um, I think that's the benefit of the program that we've had and specifically having Dr. Jones involved with that, um, is that we're not just going to sit back and have the status quo be okay. We're going to go out there. We're going to hit the streets hard wherever we can. And he's going to help us foster that in whatever way we need it to look. Let me just ask you something, Mark, because you're you're in an an exquisite position right now to answer this question. Um, I have uh, people that call me to consult and uh, sometimes they are graduate students and sometimes they are calling to ask about my thought on research and I'm not a researcher. And I don't know any place yet where uh, students from around the world can come together in their own forum to share what research they're doing in the paradigm of sharing it that promotes the research as opposed to fighting for the scarce funds that are available, which is also a reality, right? But, you know, one person was asking me about doing some qualitative research on outcomes with neurofeedback and trauma. Now, I know there are other people doing that, but I don't know where to put them, how to put them together. And I'm wondering if there is uh, any, any forum for that presently, or if that's something we could create at ISNR. This would be the natural place to do it. It's definitely something I plan to create. Um, I'm, I'm not sure in what form the forum might take, but I tell you, it's, it's uh, humbling, uh, hopeful, and scary uh, to think about the great minds that we have in this field and the work that's been doing. And uh, we have to tap into that um, gold mine and, and be able to collaborate around research. And this, the funds are scarce. Uh, Bessel van der Kolk couldn't get NIH funding for, for his uh, PTSD research. And uh, we, we knocked on that door a few times ourselves, but uh, uh, we have to come up with ways to get it done. And, and we're not going to be able to unless we work together. And so, uh, yes, uh, I, I love what you, you just gave me a little um, thread there to, to think about a, a communication uh, network. Uh, Mark, in the pre-show, you blew my mind, pardon the pun. You... Now, remember, I'm not the tech guy here, but what I think I heard you say was you're going to have a a database, I don't call it open source, but where people can put their downloads. Because to me, one of the things that I'm seeing is with this fear, uncertainty, and doubt, whoever holds the databases, well, my database is better than your database, all right? Uh, Yours is no good, mine's best, and then people don't. There's two reasons why people don't buy. They don't understand the offer or they're not sufficiently disturbed. Okay, if everybody's confused, they're going to, you know what, give me the pill, right? Plus, throw on top of it, people are lazy. I don't want to train. 
in our office, we do the EEGs. We got a place where we can put it. Here's somebody with these symptoms, and and it's free. What what do you got going on? Well, uh, the concept that really came from uh, Anat Rogel, who's the current president of ISNR, postdoc from MIT, <laughs> um, knows a few things about uh, computer science and, and whatnot. But um, uh, to begin developing a, an open source normative database uh, is just one one thing we can do. And um, now that doesn't mean we just upload any and every EED, but you have to have a process. And um, but I think that's going to be the future. We got so much database envy <laughs> going on <laughs> right now, and 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 some of the databases are, are quite uh, dated and um, limited but helpful, um, but imagine, and, and there are other areas in uh, science and research that use this, this kind of open source uh, model. And uh, it really opens things up for research. Imagine uh, somebody doing a dissertation and here's a treasure trove of data. They want to look at something, uh, you know, there it is. And, uh, you know, they could access this and, uh, and go to town with it. There, you know, I, I get questions all the time. Is, is there research about using this for that? And, uh, you know, the answer is usually no. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and there's reasons for that. It's, it's expensive to do and uh, prohibitive. So we, we have to start knocking down those barriers. And I, I like the term citizen science. Uh, I'm an amateur astrophotographer and uh, uh, citizen science is used a lot in astronomy, uh, where you uh, train people how to process data and you turn them loose. And, uh, uh, you know, because you just have so much data, uh, you can't really hardly process it and teach computers how to process it. But that's, that's what we have to come, come up with is collaborative uh, research. And that would have the statistical power, you know, that's, that's robust statistically where you know people who know what research is could look at it and go well you know they got a point uh, neurofeedback does help this stat sig stat sig <laughs> jay how would you do that you've done a half a million of these things god i wish we would have had that in one place well they're all in one place it's just <laughs> unfortunately not easily accessed um normative databases are a reference point but ultimately uh, normal isn't always uh, uh, the interesting endpoint. I, I ran a meeting in 1998 in Austin, Texas for ISNR. Well, then I think it was SNR, SSNR, one of the earlier versions of the, of the title. And uh, there was a panel I set up as I was running the meeting. And Leslie Pritchup, representing NX Link Database, uh, Barry Sturman with the, the skill database and Bob Thatcher with his database. And there were questions in the audience and I was running around with a microphone like Phil Donahue, you know, uh, taking questions and, and, you know, the, I wanted to get all the questions on the tape that was being recorded so that this, you know, people could actually look at this after the fact or, or buy the tape so they could understand it. And there, it came a point with five minutes left in the panel's time that there were no more questions and I had the microphone. This is a dangerous moment. You know, so <laughs> I, I, I looked at the panel and I, I thanked them for, you know, 
describing their databases and everything. And then I turned around, looked at the audience. I said, you know, I see here on the aisle, three rows in, Roy John. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Roy's not normal. Roy's, Roy's extraordinary. Why would I want a normative database if I could have a Roy John extraordinary database for us to compare to? It's a template that's not normal, but boy, it's awfully damn good. And I asked that question to the panel. Why would you use a normative database if you could have a Roy John extraordinary database? And they were all slack jawed. There was no answer from the panel that the, the uh, 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 you know, their orientation was towards normal. Look it up somewhere. What the hell is normal? Right. <laughs> you know, uh, the absence of pathology. Who the hell do you know that doesn't have some pathology? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I do think that our orientation towards normal is important for people that have severe pathology. But there's a whole bunch of people that don't have severe pathology where normal wouldn't necessarily be their goal. They're looking for a Roy John extraordinary goal. Uh, Elite athletes don't have normal EEGs. Um, Why would you train them to the norm? Uh, You need to set a different target for some applications. Again, if you've got a broken leg, you want to be normal, you know, but if you're an Olympic runner, you don't want to be normal. (laughs) You want to be the extraordinary Olympic runner. So I think we need to open up what we're gathering from simply being a bunch of normal people. And some of us would eschew being normal rather strongly. You know, I, uh, I run away from being normal if I can. <laughs> so um, I, I think gathering clinical databases is at least as important as gathering normal databases. So rather than worrying about whether the person qualifies or not, gather all of the information you can about the person and their data and let the accumulation of all of that end up sorting out normal versus extraordinary or some unique niche that we don't even recognize at this point. So um, again, uh, if you have enough personal information and the EEG, the collection of that at some point would become valuable. Now it's going to have to be a giant collection to actually provide the value, but that's, that's where an international organization comes in handy. I mean, if, if you're in a single practice, you can't gather enough information. Uh, if you're 10 single practices, you can't gather enough information. But, you know, when you've got thousands of members and you reach across multiple continents, you can start to be a funnel to gather that information together. And again, I, normal's a fabulous thing to know about, but uh, the the questions aren't how normal is my patient? <laughs> I mean, uh, you're wondering how does my patient match? Uh, is this dementia or depression? Not is this normal? So, uh, you know, it's, it's time to get some other templates other than just normative templates. <laughs> no, no, it's, it, for me, it's, it's, it's also what, you know, once you have all of this, what are the categories that you use? 
Yeah. Right? So dementia is an easy category. Depression may be toward easier. But you get into PTSD. These brains don't look alike. They're, yeah. and, and are they sub, are they subtypes of each other? And yep. we get caught, very caught and deeply caught and, and possibly tangled in these diagnostic precursors of the information that we now have. Like, you know, the, the 157 diagnoses. Are we, uh, are we supposed to put our EEGs in those bins? We're never going to do that. Right. I mean, it's hard yeah. enough to even make the class the cut in terms of normal and abnormal because we, it's not a category. Jay just said, right? It's not a category. There's no such thing as a normal brain. It doesn't exist. But there is a brain that doesn't have seizures. There's a brain that doesn't have paroxysmal activity of 50 uh, microvolts. So what, what, what are the brains that do? And then what, what are they, what diagnoses are they given? That might be a way to go about it. Yeah. Right. What do we see in the in the brains of those people who are then given these uh, degrading diagnoses? Right. Well, that, that might be a way. And the diagnosis sometimes avoids the obvious as well. Uh, you can have an EG and show it to the neurologist and it has gigantic spike and slow waves. It's as abnormal as the day is long. And the doctor looks at it and says, we don't treat the EEG, we treat the patient. Mm-hmm. Well, who do you think made the EEG? You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, um, and, and the, the, there's epileptiform content in, in patients that don't obviously have seizures. And if you treat them with the medications that are usually paired up with their class of diagnostic category, you can make them worse. If you don't look at the EEG ahead of time, you can miss the critical feature that's not part of the DSM category that they're pigeonholed in. Mm-hmm. You know, in the ADD, ADHD population, 25% on the average have epileptiform content. In autism, 60% on the average. There's one study that showed 85%. They had over 1,000 people in the study. And, you know, 85% of them ended up having epileptiform content, but they did a full sleep study, a, a 24-hour recording, including sleep. Um, so that that might even be a more accurate number. Mm-hmm. But at least 60% of the autism population, 12% of the anxiety, and you think, oh, well, 12%, that's a little bit of nothing. Well, the normal population, 3%. So mm-hmm. anxiety at 12%, four times more than the normal population. That's a significant change. Uh, in, in mood disorders, it's 3%. Unless the mood disorder is inappropriate affect. Pseudobulbar affect is a mood disorder presentation. That your mood's off, but pseudobulbar affect has a 30-something percent chance of an epileptiform content. What does that uh, mean, pseudobulbar? Uh, 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 it's a Okay. It's a, a out of control emotion. Uh, if you have a fit of laughter, the old term "fit" isn't fit for use in <laughs> epilepsy, <laughs> but it's descriptive. A fit of anger, a fit of laughter. Again, <laughs> those kinds of inappropriate emotion. Now, you know, it's nothing inappropriate. If you want to laugh, laugh. But if you're laughing because of pseudobulbar affect, you're not. It's, you don't think it's funny. You're out of control. You're, you're freaked out about the fact that you can't stop laughing and 
this this is this is a, a psychotic behavior. So um, uh, and uh, again, mood disorders three percent, just like the background population, but inappropriate mood thirty something percent success, thirty something percent has epileptic form content. Uh, the, 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 there's all sorts of categories. Tourette's that has a high incidence of epileptiform content. Uh, exactly how high, we don't have a real good study on that. But um, if you gave an anticonvulsant to everyone with Tourette's, you would be, it would wash out. It's not 80%, it's not 100%. So, you know, if you do a pharma trial on the DSM category, you don't show efficacy. But if you look at the EEG and you see epileptiform content and you treat those people with the anticonvulsants, you have success. So uh, um, it, it's, um, it, it's a shame that we don't look at the EEG more directly in psychiatry and psychology because the, the diagnostic categories that we use aren't, aren't exactly pure. And normal isn't one category either. You know, the phenotype marvel that I kind of stumbled on by looking at too many EEGs and kind of seeing patterns in the data. And if you think you see patterns in the data, if your data is speaking to you, you have to publish about it to find out if you're crazy or not. Because if you if your data is speaking to you, you could just be crazy. And, you know, just, you know, you're, you're imagining things. But when you publish about it and it predicts things and you can test it and it turns out, to, to be in fact predictive, then it wasn't just being crazy that there was actually things in the data. The normative population is all of the phenotypes clustered together. It's the average of all of those phenotypes, mm-hmm. but with a very minimal expression. If you express your phenotype in a more dramatic way, you're clinically significant. If you minimize the proportion of expression of the phenotype, you fall within normal limits. So uh, uh, normal versus not normal isn't a change in kind. It's a change of degree. Great. Um, I, I had uh, Whitney uh, queue up the slide uh, with our lab on the on the right. And, and this is uh, a takeoff from what Jay was talking about. Uh, on, on the right is our lab uh, room where we record EEGs. And... Um, uh, what uh, one of the students is uh, looking at is the live uh, EEG uh, tracings uh, scrolling across. And of course, we don't talk when we're uh, recording EEG. So at the top of the screen are uh, labels uh, that I've uh, put up uh, where we, I can point out the alpha peak frequency or whether it's there or not, uh, artifacts of different kinds. Uh, unusual types of things, spindles, whatever, drowsiness indicators, uh, what beta looks like, uh, all this uh, that I can point to while we're uh, reading uh, the EEG because I want students to learn to look at the data of the EEG. And this comes from my uh, uh, experience with with Jay. Back in the day, I used to send uh, EEGs to Jay's uh, company to get reports, and then I discovered, well, I can pay this money and I get this really nice report back, or I can pay this money and I get Jay for an hour. <laughs> and so I spent a lot of hours uh, with Jay, uh, and he, you know, I don't know if you've ever consulted with Jay, but you get your money's worth. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you get the 60 minutes, if not some. And uh, so 
you know, uh, time after time. And I thought, you know, I think I can kind of, I think I want to go for this QEG certification, you know, and um, I don't know if you remember, Jay, but you said, I have EEG eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so I went, oh my, I can look at the EEG. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> there's some, some things I can't figure out, but uh, pattern recognition is one of the things I can do. So that's that's a 75 inch monitor sitting on the wall uh, and you can see the EEG. And so we're trying to teach people uh, in the program how to look at an EEG. And time and time again in my practice, uh, we'll have somebody come in with specific kinds of symptoms. And this stuff isn't going to show up necessarily on the on the da- on the database comparison on the brain maps but you might see uh intermittent uh epileptiform activity very bright young man parents bring him in teacher says every so often randomly he just gets out of his chair no impulse control for a few minutes well the poor kid is making <laughs> epileptiform discharge and uh, so off to his uh, neurologist, uh, he went. And I mean, uh, imagine the trajectory of that child's life, you know, how that's going to be impacted uh, addressing that issue. The, the, you would only uh, see it in the raw EEG. Um, and, and then I, I always keep in mind, uh, uh, Seaburn, what I've heard you say in your workshops and in your book, it's not always in the the brain maps, uh, you know, you have to treat uh, the patient and you've got a wonderful paradigm uh, for doing just that. And so I, I try not to steer my students down one path, but show them the landscape uh, of the various paths. And you have to keep all that in mind. And, and at that point, Emily, I want to put you on the spot. I want you to talk about the Neurofeedback Society of UTSA. Sure, definitely. And I just want to follow up on what he was saying too. The first time as a student that you see your first beta spindle and you see it before he like circles it on the little sheet or you see your first lateral eye rolls and stuff and you're just like, oh my gosh, I know what this is. I I know what that is. It's so empowering, right? Um, For us as students too. So the fact that he takes that time and that mentorship for us students is so important. So, you know, it's up to us to ask a lot of questions. And then when we can have mentors in our lives who are so willing to, to teach us all of these basics, it's just empowering. Um, For the Neurofeedback Society at UTSA, it's a student organization. So of course, we have follow some university rules. Um, But we are very unique in in the fact that because our program is the only BCIA certified accredited um, public university program, having our society kind of work in tandem with that has been an incredible experience. Um, We do a conference every year. I remember my first year at UTSA, uh, Seaburn Fisher was one of the people in 2020 at our conference. And I was so starstruck. I'm still starstruck. I don't know if you can tell, but she's just, I've gotten to know her so much through her work and how incredible she is. Um, And then I was fortunate enough to become president from 2021 to 2022. So our last conference that we just put on, we were able to have some greats in the field come out as well and talk to students and um, to really engage with everybody on programs. And again, we've always been bringing in that research piece 
Um, we are really, Dr. Jones and myself and um, Whitney, we're very into research. We really think that research is the key to everything. So um, we were very intentional at this last conference to pick people from different mental health fields that could come in and talk about neurofeedback because multidisciplinary cooperation is going to be really important. Um, to be able to get us to, to that point where instead of all of this infighting type of thing, um, we can actually just all work together. That's kind of our idea. And to help students kind of understand, because I know as a student, it wasn't super obvious to me how to get involved with research. Um, so something that the society has been is a, a great place for like-minded people to come together to start to learn about neurofeedback and to um, become really involved. And I think we're gonna pull up some awards right now um, to kind of show you, I think, uh, Seaburn Fisher kind of mentioned, we do tend to get a lot of the awards at ISNR um, for our poster presentations and our research projects. This is my good friend, Cerise. I absolutely adore her. If you've ever met her, she's a genuine person. Um, and this is her getting um, the In Memoriam Award and with Dr. Jones, as you can see. Um, this is one of my best friends, uh, Claire Gregory. Um, she is just her mind is incredible. What she's going to do for this field is amazing. And to see her getting these awards um, and to see the research and the heart that goes into it for neurofeedback has been incredible. Um, this was the uh, Judith, I'm probably going to say last name wrong, <laughs> Lubar Scholarship um, Award uh, that we were um, able to get. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was the, one of the awards that one of our students got. Um, this is Laurel uh, Jackson Cook. I guess I call her Laurel Jackson, um, but she's a really amazing person who I got to work with her dissertation um, in regards to wellness and neurofeedback and clinicians. And this is her receiving the In Memoriam Award as well. Um, and then these are another couple of students, uh, Laurel there again on the right and um, Noelle Blessing. She is another one of those beautiful minds in the field that's going to be doing a lot. I think she's in her doctoral program right now, um, receiving the Jeannie B. Davis scholarship. And, you know, there she is with the legend herself. Um, and yeah. so these are just some of these awards that we've been really being able to receive because of that fostered mentorship, because of that fact that we tend to draw in a lot of people who are like-minded and who want to cooperate versus have, um, anything divisive come between us. Anytime we hear about something cool that we think might make a research project, we immediately go running into the class like, hey guys, I have this amazing idea. What are we doing about it? And uh, Dr. Jones is so gracious as to like put his coffee cup down and be like, okay, I'm here, let's do it. <laughs> so me, it's been uh, a really- let me, uh, let me interrupt just a minute. This is a great picture from one of our uh, uh, early uh, conferences and uh, Jenny is uh, presenting these uh, uh, scholarship uh, in person, uh, and Jenny, uh, th th these uh, scholarships are uh, in her name through BCIA, which pay the fees for certification. And so based on recommendations, uh, these awards are, are gifted. And uh, I believe Noel might have been one of the first uh, to receive it. And so this is a great picture. We had uh, Jenny there in person. Uh, she and Richard presented uh, a, a workshop, as did uh, Don Moss. Uh, he was talking about HRV uh, there. So uh, a great picture of these these two folks. Uh, one of my early students and the first uh, graduate assistant, uh, Shanda, uh, said, Dr. Jones, they have this award and it's $500 and I need $500. So I'm going to go for the award. <laughs> and I said, okay. So she took one of her uh, uh, subjects or clients she was treating through the university center 
uh, put together the data and, and walked away with a $500 check <laughs> to the amazement of the counseling faculty who said, you know, hers was by far the most scientific uh, presentation in, in the whole college. So, um, and here is uh, Shanda receiving an award from Jenny at ISNR. Um, our students did present a pilot study uh, at ISNR. This is when uh, Rob Coben was president. The lead was Stephanie uh, Dries, who uh, led the article. Uh, that was, boy, talk about a, a high point uh, in, my, in my life. But we have, we, we've cranked out uh, quite a bit of research, uh, poster presentations, articles, and with some other uh, folks on the faculty as well. Um, here is uh, Claire's um, presentation. Claire's doing her uh, and has finished uh, the research on her doctoral dissertation on using neural feedback to lower cravings uh, among folks who uh, have alcohol abuse disorder. Uh, and uh, she was tracking, uh, we, we did neural feedback. We also, we didn't do HRV, but we tracked it and to see how it might affect it. Um, the uh, student, uh, Laurel, that we were looking at earlier was a recipient of the first uh, In Memoriam Award, um, is currently in her uh, dissertation research on uh, treating uh, therapists who have vicarious trauma from treating people with trauma. And uh, this, the university got, the department got a grant here a while back to uh, set up shop and treat uh, victims of the Sutherland Springs shooting, uh, which is kind of in our neck of the woods. And so uh, we trained the clinicians in neurofeedback and EMDR and, um, and turn them loose. They're, they're still treating people. Um, and Laurel was the lead on using neurofeedback for that. So I think from her own experience and from her uh, colleagues and classmates who were so deeply affected. And uh, so we're doing neurofeedback on the people who've been treating uh, the clinicians. And I think that's a wonderful uh, area. So hey, hey, Ma hey, Mark, we got yeah. uh, high school seniors that don't know where they want to go to college. Uh, they just saw this video. Like, how? How do they start? How do they, uh, how can well, they take uh, the courses? Yeah, you know, to get into counseling or other mental health fields, you really need to get into grad school. And um, uh, Emily, I think you said your uh, undergrad was in psychology as, as well. So you start out with psychology? That's a good field. Uh, okay. Any other thoughts on, on the, where to start, Whitney? I would or say too, um, like any any type of social work type of field, any of that mental health kind of undergrad work can be really helpful. You do need to be in that graduate program. Um, something that I found really fascinating is that UTSA allows um, students uh, who have graduated um, with a master's or a doctorate to enroll as a non-degree seeking student in our classes. So right now, one of um, my good friends in the class, she's already an LPC. Um, so she's already had her licensure. She's already done all of our hours, um, but she's enrolled as a non-degree seeking student, literally only taking the three courses. So she's already taken the intro course and now she's an advanced one clinician and she'll be an advanced two in the summer. And that will fulfill all those requirements except for the neuroanatomy course. And of course, 
sitting to take your fun exam. Um, other than those two things, and Dr. Jones gives you so much information about the exam, and I think he even teaches a lecture on it sometimes. So um, he's the guy to learn from. Um, so yeah, those three courses are able to be taken if you're in the graduate counseling degree or doctorate degree at UTSA, or if you've already graduated and you just want to be a non-degree seeking student enrolled in our classes. It is in person though, um, so just be aware that you would want to be in the San Antonio area-ish um, to be able to uh, do that clinical work. I am just happy to listen to all the uh, uh, cool things that are going on at, at the university level. Um, when I went to school, obviously we didn't have these kinds of things and, you know, we have to learn all this on our own kind of underground and, and um, you know, uh, word, word of mouth and references from uh, good people. So it's nice to have something organized going on. And uh, I have not, I've yet to, I'll say it that way, yet to go to an ISNR meeting. And I'm definitely looking forward to that. I know we only have like a minute or two left, but I got, uh, I want to show off something real quick <clears throat> to, the, to the people who uh, have any uh, visuals. Uh, this, this gizmo came in the mail the other day. It's called iMedisync. Uh, it's a dry dry cap, gel free. So I just wanted to show off that I have I it here. One. Yeah, it's super cool. Um, we're going we're gonna to follow the progress uh, of someone using this on the podcast at some point. Right now, it's kind of a paperweight in my basement. What? <laughs> oh, we can play hockey. <laughs> Ride our bikes down the street. It's about My, mine's in a case right over next to me here too. Okay. So, yeah, so apparently it's catchy. So. It is catchy. Yeah, I've got this white uh, growth on my head. Um, I have yet to uh, hook it up because we're having trouble. Uh, Samsung apparently is a South Korean company, which is where, where the, these uh, caps were developed. And Samsung is readily available in South Korea uh, with um, a lot of RAM space. So in the U.S., particularly suburbs of Chicago, not so easy to buy a tablet that they uh, pair with. So anyway, uh, stay tuned. You know, you know, Mark is exposing his students to the raw EEG. And across time, the neurologist has, on the average, six months of EEG specialization training. So your students are actually getting the raw EEG exposure, perhaps not the focus on the kind of pathology that, uh, you know, neurologists focus on, but they're getting exposure to the waveform at the same kind of a level as a neurologist. Now, an electroencephalographer or epileptologist has a year and a half or more of training, but the average neurologist, six months or less. So your students need to rest assured that their exposure to EEG is world-class. This is not a, a, a weak tea bag that's been dunked once. <laughs> You're actually getting full-strength exposure from Mark's class. We don't want any weak, no weak tea bags. Yeah, Whitney. Because I feel like you have so much to learn. <laughs> well, we hey, like Jay says, if there's an expert out there and they claim it, run away. <laughs> oh, Dr. Mark, Whit Whitney Rich, Emily Surratt, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for having us.
Oh, what a great. Too bad it's only an hour, man. We're going to bring you guys back. We got to promote. We got to promote. Jay Seaburn, thank you again, Dr. Laura. We thank you all for listening to Neuro Noodles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsors, Mary Tracy's Neuro Training Strategies. They offer a higher standard EEG, QEG, education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEG certified didactic courses. Register now at EEGstrategies.com. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. That one little click, oh, it means the difference between three people or 3,000 people learning about neurofeedback. We, if they can't hear us, we can't help them, guys. You got a question? You got an t- idea for a topic or guest? Please email Pete at neuronoodle.com or leave us a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. And in the podcast notes, guys, uh, Dr. Mark, uh, where, where should people learn more about your program and the ISNR? Oh, um... For ISNR, uh, isnr.org uh, will get you there, and you can Google Neurofeedback UTSA, and you'll hit our page at the university. We'll put that all in the in the podcast notes. Excellent. See how I did that there, so people listen to it. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts, and again, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you really, really, really like us, you can always buy us a uh, coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps, don't we, Jay? Absolutely. Where do they get this kind of coverage? Nowhere. Cue the music. 